The U.S. Code, which is a consolidation of our country's laws, contains over 4,500 federal crimes and more than 300,000 federal regulations that carry criminal penalties. Now, additionally, every single state has their own collection of laws and criminal statutes and regulations that carry criminal penalties. According to author and attorney Harvey Silvergate, the average American commits unknowingly three felonies a day. You didn't know that you were a felon. You just haven't been convicted yet. So there's the laws we don't know we're breaking, and then there's the laws we actually know we're breaking, but we don't think they really apply to us. We don't think they're that big of a deal. We don't even understand why they're a law. We think that everyone else is doing it, so I might as well. Or maybe you just don't think you're going to get caught. Think of everything from speeding to wearing your seatbelt or not wearing your seatbelt to using your phone while you're driving to maybe some of the things we do on our taxes. Speaking of not thinking you're going to get caught, do you know what Wesley Snipes, Pete Rose, Chuck Berry, and Daryl Strawberry all have in common? They all went to jail for failing to pay their federal income tax. Now, I don't think you end up in jail for not paying your taxes if you didn't know that you weren't paying your taxes. I don't think anyone accidentally ends up in jail. I think when you're at the place where they're trying to put you in jail for not paying your taxes, you have been intentionally, purposefully, actively hiding, withholding, and in other, every other way, avoiding paying what you owe to the government. You have to be at that point. And maybe you are doing that because you don't feel like you do owe it. Maybe in your opinion you don't, or maybe you admit that you owe it, you just would prefer to keep it instead of giving it to them. And that's certainly an understandable position to take. I'm not here to argue legitimacy of taxes or even the efforts anyone makes to try to not pay taxes legally. I will caution you to remember though that the difference between avoiding taxes and evading taxes is about three to five years. So there is a big difference between the two. But let me get back to the point I was trying to make. The person who withholds what they owe to another is not just keeping what they think belongs to them, they're stealing what actually belongs to somebody else. Imagine if you had my lawnmower and I said, I need that back. And you said, I'd prefer to keep it. 
That's not just you hanging on to what you think is now rightfully yours. It's you stealing from me. It may feel like a more passive form of stealing, but it's stealing nonetheless. A thief, by definition, has in his or her possession something of value that rightfully belongs to someone else. But that thief has rationalized and excused in their mind why they should be the one that gets to keep it, why they don't owe that thing to someone else. You and I can agree that we unknowingly break laws. I'm sure there's things we do every day that we don't know is illegal. There's things we do that we think are illegal that aren't. They've made jaywalking essentially non-punishable. They used to be able to give you a ticket. Now, jaywalk all you want. You can, but everybody thinks jaywalking is illegal. Cross in the middle of the road. You're going to get hit by a car, but just do it because it's not illegal, right? Then there are the laws we know we're breaking. And we've excused those somehow. So if that's true of state and federal laws, how much more true is it that you and I are regularly breaking laws of God Rules that God's put in our lives to keep us and withhold us from doing something that harms ourselves or harms another. God certainly doesn't want to withhold life or goodness or happiness or pleasure, blessing, favor. He doesn't want us to not have those things. So any rule that exists is to simply keep us from damaging the life he gave us or hurting somebody else. Question is, how many of those laws do we break regularly? And I'll just say even knowingly. Let me say this. I know for a fact that every one of us is 100% guilty of stealing. Maybe not by a legal standard, but definitely by God's standard. And here's how I know that. Because every single one of us is guilty of withholding something God says that we are indebted to pay to each other. All day, every day, in perpetuity, meaning forever. We are in a debt of love to one another that we are faithfully irresponsible in paying. We are chronically either late, withholding, hiding, in every other way, trying to keep from giving it to people we don't think deserve it, who we think we don't owe it to, who we think they don't, uh, uh, haven't earned that from us. We are all guilty. And I would say even daily of stealing. Listen to what Romans 13, eight says, don't owe anyone anything. Don't be indebted to anyone with, of course, the exception of love. To one another, not to God. Notice he, he could have put himself there. And instead he said, with the exceptional love to one another, that is a debt which never ends. Everyone say never. never. Hold that into your head. Never, ever ends because the person who loves others has fulfilled the law. Did you know the Bible says that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, which means just destroy it and show no legitimacy to it whatsoever. But it says he came to fulfill it, complete it in every way, perfect it where it was imperfect laws by themselves. The Bible says actually entice us into sin. 
The law is the reason we sin. If there wasn't a prohibition to it, then it wouldn't be sinful to break it. So the law is what makes us want to sin, essentially. Jesus came and fulfilled the law and said, listen, break the law. Don't break the law. It doesn't matter. If you break the law, you're only hurting yourself. You're only wounding yourself. The law was set up to help you behave differently. You couldn't behave differently. You just indulged in all of those. I came to liberate you from using the law to make you right from with God. You and I hate laws. We hate rules. We hate restrictions. We hate boundaries because they confine us from what we believe is our free will. The Bible says that when you and I love each other, we complete and fulfill the law. We lift all of the rules and regulations. God will never, never ask you to stop loving people or love people less, or you're getting carried away with the love. When you love as God loved, he says, I'm, I'm taking my, you go, you go for it. Go as hard as you can. I love seeing that the problem is. You and I often don't think we owe it. We often think there are people that are disqualified from it. Listen, I hope um, that there are those of you in here who are 100%. Can I clean my glasses? There's a speck of something on it that's driving me absolutely crazy. All right. That didn't make it better, but okay. You guys are still there. Can I? Okay. Um, I, I hope all of you are, are getting close to or have achieved being debt free. Hope you don't have a mortgage. I hope you don't owe a bank for your car payment. I hope you don't have any student debt. We know how horrible <clears throat> that is. It feels like you'll never be able to pay that off. Hopefully you don't owe some high interest credit card. I hope that you're not indebted to anyone. I especially hope you don't owe family money. That's the absolute worst. I'd rather have a bank uh, breathing down my neck than owe a family member money, right? I have never met anyone though that had gotten to the point where they didn't know taxes. I know a lot of you older people, you've paid off your homes, you've, you're driving the same car you were driving 25 years ago, you've paid that off, you don't buy anything new. You know, I told Lisa, I said, I'm waiting for the day when we just get frozen in time and our grandkids come and ask why our house looks like this. And it's because we just don't buy anything new for the house. Whatever the walls are painted, that's fine. The couch, we'll just put couch covers on them. I, I want to get to that point soon, right? Sooner than later. Um, but, but there's a point in which you don't owe anyone anything except taxes. You will never reach a day in your life where you don't owe the debt of taxes. Ever. So there are two debts that you will never, ever get out of. I know this, that uh, famously uh, Benjamin Franklin said uh, when he was celebrating the historic accomplishment of our, our new constitution, the founding of our country, he said this, our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable, lasting. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Can I tell you that the debt that you will always pay to the government will come in the form of taxes and the debt that you will essentially pay God, the debt he says you owe according to his law is love for one another. We will never get to a place where we are not indebted to each other. The debt of love. Now, I will tell you this, just like the IRS tax code, 
God's math is a little fishy as well. (laughs) A little hard to follow, but I'm going to give you just two things this morning that I think are going to help you calculate the debt that you owe. Number one, using the new math of love means that I'll multiply what I receive. I'll multiply what I get when I add to what I give. I think you'll get what I mean in just a second. So I'm going to say not many good ideas come from staying out late, drinking at a bar with your friends. But it just so happens in this case, a man named Ashley Revel, who was 32 years old, he was a researcher for TV. He had a late night of fun with some friends that would set him on a path where his life would never be the same again. Him and his group of friends began to talk about gambling And they posed the question, what would it feel like to take everything you own, everything, your life savings, cash in stocks, sell your car, your clothes, take literally everything you have and bet it on one roulette spin. The thrill of what that must feel like, the the pressure, the, 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 the potential of getting that all back multiplied by two. Well, after that evening, Ashley's friends went on about their way, thinking they had just had a evening of entertaining conversation. Ashley, though, became fixated on making this possibility a reality. And so he went about cashing out everything, emptying his savings account. He sold his BMW, his Rolex. He even sold his clothes to gain as much money as possible so that he could go to Vegas and from England, mind you, and put this on a roulette spin. But he wasn't content with just coming up with that. He had joined together with an online uh, betting organization um, called uh, Blue Square. And he went into an agreement with them that if he legally changed his name to Ashley Blue Square Ravel, that they would give him more money to bet on. And so he did that. He eventually amassed around $136,000, every single penny that he owned and could raise. So Ashley, along with a film crew that was documenting, uh, documenting this wild journey, went to Vegas with Ashley's parents and a couple friends to wager everything he had. But... Before he could do that, the casino who had agreed to do it, to take this outlandish bet, every possession and every dollar of this man backed out. Didn't want to be associated with the casino who literally ruined a man, who let him bet well beyond the floor limit and well beyond the casino's limit. They backed out. But at the last minute, another casino stepped up, the Plaza Casino and Hotel, which I don't think any longer exists in Vegas, and said that they would, maybe because of that, said that he could risk it all there. So on that day, flanked by his parents, his close friends, and a hundred spectators, he added to the pot everything he had in the hopes that it would multiply. And I'll let you see what happens.
There's mom stressed out. <laughs> Not wanting Ashley to move back in. endorsing on any level for you to go and do that. Although I will tell you, I'm not a gambler, but I like roulette. I remember Lisa and I went on a cruise with some friends and I had never uh, been in the casino before. And um, I, I, I gave Lisa 20 and I took 20 and I said, well, let's, let's go have fun. Lisa likes to play penny slots that she just, it's really slowly works through the 20. I like to go just burn it really quickly and just, I like to throw it down and then walk away from the table and go, you're going to end up keeping that anyway. Um, but, but I, I went and played roulette for the first, I had no idea what I was doing and I was putting chips just anywhere and I put them on black and red and my friend goes, uh, that cancels each other out. You're going to lose either way. And I said, but I'll win either way too. And uh, he left and I took $20 and made it into like 160 in like 15 minutes. And I came back to them and I had the coupon and I said, I, I just, uh, that's really easy. Like we should do that all the time. Like that's so easy to make money. And they're like, what you made? I was like, yeah, is it not that easy for everyone else? Um, it's not always that easy. I will tell you that. Uh, and in this case, I want to show you how addition turned to multiplication. He took everything and added that in. The only way that he could increase that is to continue to add to it. He could make 136,000, 137,000 and keep working and keep contributing and keep raising money. And he could add to that, but what he did multiplied it instantly. He used addition to become multiplication. I want to read this passage to you from Acts 20, 33 through 35. This is Paul speaking. He says, remember my example. I, this is a very early church he's talking to. I never once coveted a single coin of silver or gold. I never looked twice at someone's fine clothing. No, you know this. I worked with my own hands making tents and I paid my own expenses and I even paid my uh, companion's expenses as well. This is my last gift to you. So he, he's shifting right here. This example of a way of life, a life of hard work, a life of helping the weak, a life that echoes every day those words of Jesus, our King, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul uses his own resume of not wanting what didn't belong to him, of not taking from anyone else, of not using people to get money. He says, I worked for everything. I earned everything. As a matter of fact, I've lived a life of generosity. My work actually paid for the expenses of others. You've added nothing to me. And he says, I want to show you how blessed a life can be when you are a giver and not a taker. He says, I want to show you that with my life, the words of Jesus are true. I've been blessed because I've been a giver and not a taker. I've done what it takes to make sure I can give more and take less. 
There were sure times when Paul asked for the church to raise money so that he could go on missionary uh, trips to go plant more churches. But remember, Paul at one point also said, do you want me waiting tables or do you want me pastoring? I can't do both at the same time. Paul said, I've worked for everything. I've used addition to get multiplication. God will take generosity and he'll move it back onto me. Listen to what it says in Luke 6, 37 through 39. This is a passage we use all the time. And I'll admit that I've used it. I'll say out of context or in other contexts than what it was originally written for. I've used it in the concept of giving. If we give, it will be given back to us teaching generosity. But listen, this was actually talking about how we treat one another. It says, if you don't want to be judged, these are Jesus's words, then don't judge. If you don't want to be condemned, then don't condemn. If you want to be forgiven, then forgive. Don't hold back. Give freely, generously, and you'll have plenty poured back into your lap. A good measure, pressed down. So this, listen, this was a terminology they knew that when they were buying in the market and they were buying a, a sack of wheat or grain or corn or anything like that, 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 that sellers would be known to kind of get a lot of air in there and they would scoop in a way that would leave a lot of space in there. That was not called a good measure. They would, if you were the buyer, want to take that sack and you'd shake it to where it would settle down to the bottom and you'd have more room and you'd say, I'm buying a sack of flour or grain. Give me a sack of flour and grain. Jesus says, you want a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and brimming over and you'll receive in the same measure you give. Now, let me stop right there. This doesn't mean you're going to give 100 and get 100 back. In the same measure means in generosity or stinginess. You're going to either give generously and receive generously, or you're going to be stingy and you're going to get nothing back. Listen, if you want to multiply the love, the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy, the kindness, the tenderness, the understanding, the patience, the forgiveness, everything that comes along under the umbrella of love, you want to give that generously and it'll be poured back to you generously. You won't even have the space to contain it. It'll be brimming over, falling into your lap. It'll be a good measure plus. But if you want to withhold, if you want to be indebted and not pay your debt, understand nobody will owe you as well. Nobody will give to you as well. And then secondly is this, using the new math of love means those I owe the least should get the most I can give. Those I owe the least should get the most I can give. And um, Jenny, you can actually come back up now. So for years, Lisa and I had heard these terrible stories from pastor friends of ours. We'd be at conventions or camps or things where we'd be sitting around and talking in confidence, kind of sharing our war stories from the churches we had been at and the pastors we had worked for. And I would hear these terrible stories from some of these guys. And they would talk about their pastor being abusive or manipulative, controlling, angry, divisive, maybe even immoral, unethical. And Lisa and I would look at each other and just think, man, are we in some kind of fantasy land where we just have never experienced that? 
we were so thankful that we had never encountered a leader like that until we did. And when we did, we understood how breaking and how exhausting and how exasperating and how disappointing and how emotionally taxing it was to be under somebody who was spiritually toxic, emotionally, mentally abusive, divisive, cruel almost in their need to control how other people saw themselves and saw others. We felt definitely um, a level of trauma that we had never felt in all of our years of ministry leading up to that. We thought there must be something wrong with us because we were at the fastest growing church in America of that denomination and the fifth fastest growing church of all denominations at the time. The pastor was in a book deal. He was well-known, invited to speak everywhere. Um, I don't know that really anyone in the church understood the depths of his unhealthiness, but if you worked on the team, you definitely understood it. And yet people stayed and we had a hard time understanding that. For us, we couldn't continue under that level of abuse. So from day one to the day we left, we felt unsafe and we decided to leave. We moved to Lincoln. Lincoln at that time was the fastest per capita, the fastest growing city in America. And we thought about the idea of maybe planting a church here. I didn't certainly want to work for another pastor at that point. And so for about a year, we had no income, no prospects. I just felt sick to my stomach every time I thought about planting a church. And we were convinced that we were done in ministry. We didn't want to be in an abusive environment again. And we weren't sure that we were qualified after having somebody convince us that we weren't worthwhile. We started to believe that narrative. And so I took a job, the only job I could get. And thankfully during that time, we began to sort of attend churches just to see what was out there. And we kept kind of landing back at what was then called heritage is now summit. And the lead pastor and his wife were very loving, very paternal and maternal to us, very determined to help walk us through the hurt. Just love us with expecting nothing in return. And it was a season of healing for us to a degree. There was still a deep rawness in me. I couldn't talk about that season without it welling up within me. And, and I would feel such shame and anger and, and my self-esteem would just drain out of me. And I, I would bring me to tears every time I talked about it. And so a year had passed without a job, without anything. And then pastor Darren, the founding pastor of this church invited me to come on staff. It was a big risk for him because I hadn't healed and I was still very broken. And as you know, hurt people will hurt people. But we did. We came on staff and there was a season of him just loving us. 
them just loving us, the church just loving us. And then about two and a half years after coming on staff, Pastor Darren recommended me to the denomination at the time we were a part of, and they appointed me as the new lead pastor. So all this time had lapsed almost four years from the time we left that abusive environment. When I heard that the lead pastor had been caught having an inappropriate relationship with a woman in the church. I will tell you that if you had asked me at any point, would I celebrate a moment like that? My honest answer would have been yes. Finally, he's been caught. Finally, he's been called on his bad behavior. Finally, everyone's going to see him for who he really is. Finally, he's going to feel the shame and the embarrassment and the, and the humiliation that he's caused so many of us in private conversations in the middle of a staff meeting. I thought I would be happy that he was getting the consequences of his bad behavior. But to my disappointment, I didn't feel any of that. I felt sad. I felt sympathy, actually. Because I knew what it was like to feel that kind of crushing weight on your identity. I understood what it was like to feel unworthy, to feel unloved, to feel broken like that. And I knew that that's what he was going through. I knew that everyone that praised his name in the pulpit, that everyone who talked about him, that everybody who had him come speak, everyone who wanted to be in the book deal with him, everyone that esteemed him so highly would be abandoning him. And he'd be alone with his shame, with a broken marriage, with a broken family, with his own kids looking at him with disappointment and shame and maybe everyone else that he loved not knowing what to do with him. And I wish I could have stood back and just ignored it and let it go and let him deal with his stuff on his own. Like we had to deal with our stuff on our own, but I couldn't. I couldn't because I had been on the receiving end of love from a pastor in a church that owed me nothing, who I couldn't repay, who I couldn't give back. I was too wounded and too broken to pay back the love that was shown to me. And I felt like God said, love is what has healed you and love is what can heal him. You have what he needs and you owe it to him. And it was devastating to hear that I owed him anything. But God said, God said, I owed you nothing. And yet I gave you everything. Romans 5.8 says, but God proves his own love to us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You've probably figured out by now that that's one of my favorite passages. 
It's when we were at our worst and most indebted to him and least capable of paying him back and least worthy of his love, that's when he gave us the most of himself. He gave everything. He bet it all on red. He gathered it all up. He took everything he cared about. He gave his own son. And so I looked in my phone to see if I still had that pastor's name. And I texted him. I remember we were still over at the theater on Lincoln Boulevard where Emmaus Church is now at. And I was sitting in the office and I just began to type out a text. And I said, I know that you must feel very alone right now. And I know that you might feel very unloved and might be having a very hard time loving yourself. But I want you to know that there are still two people who love you. I lied. <laughs> but it felt right. And I thought, oh, thank God that's over. I sent it. I felt like I had done my duty. Every day. For weeks. God told me to do it again. And the more I did it, the more I was able to forgive him. The more I gave, the more God gave to Lisa and I in our healing. He began to restore our hearts because we were releasing the love of Christ to him. And you can't love Christ and hate a person. No matter how bad they've been to you, you can't love Christ and hate a person because he says, you paying me back for what I did for you, I don't need anything from you, but everyone around you needs love. And so you are forever indebted to them. Sometime later, We had to go to Arizona where this church was uh, for a denominational convention. And I felt like I should at least offer. Lisa and I'll be there. These dates be great to get together. And honestly, we we're hoping they didn't accept our invitation. Still very hard for us. But they did. He and his wife. And we met at a restaurant and Lisa, I'm not exaggerating when I say we weren't there 30 seconds. Before they began to sob in the middle of their brokenness and their loss in this devastating season in their life, he began to say he was sorry. 
I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for how I treated you. I wish I would have been a better man. I wish I would have been a better leader. I wish I would have had a smaller church and treated my staff better. And they were still in the thick of it. I mean, they had just begun marriage counseling and it was raw. And Lisa and I began to cry and I felt terrible for our server who came up and was like, you ready to order? I didn't know. Okay, I guess not. <laughs> Is the menu that bad? But it helps us understand Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, and this is where we end today. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, we had ruined our lives because of our sins. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. Again, this is Paul emphasizing that love is what closes the gap between what's owed and who is owed. No one in your life is worthy of the kind of love that God gave to all of us and says we're indebted to continue to give to one another. That's why it's so irreconcilable that the church is so hateful is so mean-spirited, is so political. You can't be political and be loving. Politics are based on division. It's based on shame. It's based on condemnation. It's based on accusing the other side of being stupid and communist and hateful and all the things that we say about each other. The church has to get back to paying the debt we owe. Love. Love, love, love all the time, love every time. And you may think, my gosh, it feels like every series is about this. Listen, I'm just going to let you know, buckle in because we're going to keep doing it until I think that we have loved this city until they can't be loved anymore. <laughs> Father, we need you to remind us in the moments where we're facing someone who's the least deserving of our love, this is the time to empty our wallets on them. The grace, the forgiveness, the, the, the kindness, the mercy, the understanding, the empathy, the, the tenderness, all of it, everything that comes bundled in love, we release that to them. We just go, I'm giving everything to this one because they are the least deserving and be ready for the blessings that Jesus says comes from that. I need to get nothing from this person, but I'm going to give everything to them and the healing and the restoration and the kindness and the grace and the mercy that will come back into our lives because we added to that person and you multiplied best blessing back to us. Make us good at paying debt. Make us ones who just say, I'm going to pay the love tax from here until I die. I want to be always ready with a wallet full of all of those things, ready to just pay out all day. And God, you're going to need to replenish and replace all of that quickly because I want to keep paying out. I don't want to ever come up short, but we need your help. It's divine and it's supernatural what you did for us. We're incapable of doing it on our own. We don't have it within us to do it on our own. We're, 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 it's hard to forgive and it's hard to love. 
It's hard to empathize or sympathize with those who have wounded us or that, that we ideologically stand against or in every way we think they don't deserve what we have to give them. Make us the first, every person in here, the first and the most generous to pour love on people. So that God, we touch life after life after life who doesn't need our judgment, who doesn't need us quoting scripture to them, who doesn't need our political opinions, who doesn't need our position on something. They need to be loved like you loved us while we were still yet sinners. That's our prayer in Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said amen. Amen.